listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's sermon from the series Identity, a study on the book of Ephesians. says of himself in Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Pray with me. God, there is none like you. None. Nowhere. Nobody is even close to you. Lord, the universe was one of your ideas. We are your people, God. You have rescued us and we worship you this morning. And we are weak people. We are needy people, but we have a strong, strong God. And so my prayer this morning, Father, is that you would open our eyes to your word, that you give us ears to hear from you. I pray for great help in declaring your word, Lord, as you know my sin, you know my weakness, you know my inability. But I thank you that you desire your preached word to bear fruit far more than I do. And so I pray that you would teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Ephesians 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter 6. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to take that one on the chair in front of you. Um, We are wrapping up a series called Identity in the book of Ephesians. We've been there for a few months. um, And next week will be our last sermon in this series. And in this series, here's the main things we've been looking at. One, we've been looking at who we are in Christ. Right? What has God done for us and who we are in Christ? And then, in response to that, how do we live day to day? Right? 
because of who I am in Christ, what should I live like day after day after day? This is what we've been talking about for this entire series. Right? And what we've seen is really good stuff. Right? We were dead and God made us alive. We were once not the people of God, but now we are a part of the people of God. Right? We were in darkness, but now we are light. And Paul's instructed us in how to have godly marriages and godly families. Right? Some of what he's instructed us is, is tough to carry out, but for the most part, it's right in front of us. Until we get to what we're going to talk about today. You see, because the message today, the scripture passage that we're going to look at today, is totally different than anything we've seen yet when it comes to the Christian life. And that's this. The Christian life is a war. Yes, God loves us. God has rescued us. God has made us His people. God has showed us how to live a new way. But we have a supernatural enemy who wants to see our destruction. Now, for some of you guys this morning, probably packing heat, you've been listening to the Braveheart sermon all week, just, or Braveheart soundtrack all week to get ready for the sermon. Right? You, you get geeked up by spiritual warfare. For others of us, though, it might seem kind of weird or even a little bit scary. Right? But what we've got to do is we've got to deal with the reality of the Scripture and we've got to deal with reality around us. And here's what that reality is. That any of us who will try to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received, we will come under attack from the enemy. That will happen. And so my question for us this morning is when the enemy attacks you personally, when he is strategically coming after you, how do you fight? How do you stand? That's what we're going to consider. And so in in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, we're going to see three things that we have to have a grasp on if we want to stand against the enemy. So let's jump right in. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Okay, the main point in these four verses is obviously that God wants us to stand against the enemy. Four times in four verses we're commanded to stand. And the first thing we need to do if we want to stand is right in front of us. It's just obvious. And that's this. We need to know our enemy. If we want to stand against Satan, the first thing that we need to do is know our enemy. I was talking to a buddy of mine this week who is an army ranger. And he said that for every one operation, even if it's just a couple of hours, they'll spend months' worth of gathering intel and weeks' worth of prepping and training just for that one operation. Right? They're going to be ineffective in combat if they don't know who they're going up against and what their task is. Right? And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Right? These verses, my friends, and again, this is not pretend. We get way too in the habit of coming to kind of play church, and we hear all these kind of lofty, otherworldly concepts. And guys, this is not pretend. 
We have a real supernatural enemy who has minions under him. He has set up an authoritative structure to bring about the ineffectiveness of Christians and the destruction of all other people. He wants to see us destroyed. Now, before we move on, we've got to deal with the elephant in the room. Because in a room this size, surely some of you guys are thinking, Satan? Demons? Really? I mean, William, it's 2013, right? We have psychology and science. You really believe in a supernatural world? I do. Okay, I do because Jesus did. And because every New Testament writer did. And I think one of Satan's major strategies, especially in this country, is to cause us to think that he doesn't exist. If he can get, up to say, get us to say, well, if science or psychology doesn't explain it, then it can't be real. Then he's got us right where he wants us. Right? Or if he can inspire vampire books and zombie movies and little cute little Halloween pitchfork costumes, then we'll become comfortable with all this stuff and just think it's a non-factor. The reality is that there are people in different parts of the world right now who could testify to the reality and the legitimacy and the wickedness of the spiritual realm. And so we've got to be careful not to disregard the enemy altogether. I think that is what he would want most so he could manipulate freely. Right? But there's an opposite extreme that we've got to avoid. Okay? Many of us who've grown up in the church have probably gotten into the habit of blaming Satan for every, every sin that we commit. It's his fault. The devil made me do it. Right? Or every time something bad happens to us, our tendency is to shift the blame. Right? We've got to be careful not to fall into that either. If we sin, my friends, it is our fault. Satan himself tempted Eve. She was still guilty. Right? So we have, we have no freedom to blame our sin on the evil one. Okay? And some bad things that happen are just a product of us being in a fallen world. Right? So we've got to be careful of not giving the enemy too little credit, and we've got to be careful of not giving him too much credit. So who is he? Who is our enemy? The Bible tells us of Satan's origin in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And here's what it tells us. That his name was Lucifer, which means shining one. He is an angel of light. He is the guardian of God's glory. He is perhaps the most beautiful of all created beings in world history. But he became puffed up. And he wanted to be like God. And so in his arrogance, he led a rebellion against God. And with him, many of the angelic forces came, and then God cast them out of heaven. So now Satan is essentially the head of demons. And his names in the Scripture tell us who he is. He's the adversary in Job 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2. He's the devil all throughout the New Testament, which just means slanderer. Jesus calls him the father of lies. He's the evil one. Right? Everything he does is filled with absolute corruption and hatred. He is the accuser of the brethren. He wants you to wallow in your guilt and shame. He is the God of this world, and He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who is blinding the masses with false religion in the Middle East. He is likely the one directing the flow of culture from Hollywood. 
He and his minions are roaring around like lions seeking someone to devour. In these verses, 11 and 12, we see two ways that the evil forces do this. Verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. These evil spirits scheme against us. Most of the time their attacks on us are not obvious. But they're subtle. They're strategic. Right? They identify places of vulnerability in our lives, and when they identify them, they attack at the opportune time. But sometimes they just don't scheme. Look at verse 12. Think about this, you guys. The Bible, listen. There is no truer thing on the planet than this book. So we've got to make sure we're submitting to the words of it. Listen to what this says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sometimes they wrestle against us, hand-to-hand combat. They oppose us with hostility. Sometimes these attacks are subtle, but sometimes they're blatant. Sometimes it's guerrilla warfare, but sometimes it's just a cage match. I remember one time, um, I really hadn't had anything else like this happen in my life, but one time, three and a half years ago, I'm in Santa Monica, California. And I'm reading my Bible in a Panera Bread company in the morning, kind of outside a window along a main street. And there's this kind of disheveled guy, um, dirty. He looks at me, and then he looks at my Bible. He's walking along the outside of the window. And then he walks over to the window, and this guy just starts screaming at me and cussing at me. There are tons of other people in the Panera. Right? But I thought, man, this has to be some sort of demonic influence, at the very least. Right? And, and there's people in this church who've had experiences that just simply can't be explained apart from the spiritual realm. There's no other explanation. Now, I don't think this is how Satan typically operates in Savannah, Georgia. Right? In fact, I probably don't think Satan himself is too concerned about Savannah, Georgia. He's got plenty of minions to worry about us. Right? I think he would rather go unnoticed and lull us into complacency, which is where many of us find ourselves this morning. Right? But whether the enemy is scheming or wrestling, verse 13 tells us something will happen. There is an evil day that's coming. Okay? And that's just this. that There will be a time, if you're walking with Christ, when, when the enemy's attack toward you is more specific and more directed. Right? It might seem random. It might come right before God wants to use you. It might come right after God uses you. It might be because you're bearing fruit in your life or in your marriage or in your family. But be sure that the enemy aims to sidetrack you and destroy you. And if we want to stand, the first thing we've got to do is know our enemy. It's the first thing. It's not all, though. Let's look back at verse 10 to see the next thing. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Next thing that needs to be true of us if we're to stand against the enemy's attacks is we need to know where our strength comes from. We need to know the source of our strength. In verse 10, Paul commands us to be strong. How? In the strength of His might. Now, in English, this kind of fools you a little bit. It looks like we're kind of just pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and be strong in God. Hold on really tight to God or something. Okay? But in the Greek, this commands in the passive voice. Here's what that means. It should read, 
be strengthened by the Lord. Be strengthened by the Lord and in the strength of His might. Right? If we want to stand against God, we don't just be strong in ourselves. We need to be strong with God's strength. We need Him to do the strengthening. Right? And our strength for this battle, it comes from our being united to Christ. Right? Look with me at, at chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are references to the spiritual realm. And above every name that's named. Okay, so God placed Christ over everything. He has authority over all of it. And then in chapter 2 it says that we are raised with Him. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places. So get this, you guys. Christ has complete strength and authority over all things because, what if, because of what He's accomplished in His death and resurrection. Right? Colossians 2.15 says that he, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Him. So by ourselves, Satan is a completely dominating opponent. We could never stand against him. We've got no chance in the spiritual realm by ourselves apart from God. But with Christ, united to Christ, we don't fight as victims. We fight as victors. Right? We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And so Satan will try and mess with us while he awaits his coming doom. But he has no authority over us. We actually have authority over him. So we're to be strengthened in the Lord. And verse 11 and 13 tell us how to do that. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Again in 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The way that we stand against the schemes of the devil, the way that we wrestle against the attacks of the enemy, the way that we stand firm in the evil day when he's coming for us is we put on the armor of God. And this armor is not just a, a metaphor that Paul came up with. Right? This armor is God's armor. It comes right out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, chapter 11, chapter 52, chapter 59. This is the armor of God and his Messiah. And so we are to be strong with the Lord's strength. You guys, Job chapter 1, Satan's looking for somebody to tempt. And he asked to ask God for permission. See, God and Satan are not on level playing field. Our God is holy and sovereign over all things. So we operate from a place of authority in the spiritual war. Right? We don't need to be afraid. We just need to be strengthened in the Lord. So if we want to stand in the battle, we first got to know our enemy. And secondly, we've got to know the source of our strength. Okay, that's the intel side. And now we need to look at our operation. Let's get a little bit more specific. Verses 14 through 17. Stand, therefore, we see it again, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation. Third thing that needs to be true of us if we're to stand against the evil one is we've got to put on God's armor. We've got to put on God's armor. Okay, and Paul explains this using a metaphor that his original readers would have been way more comfortable and familiar with than we are. Because everybody in first century Ephesus knew what a Roman soldier was like. 
They knew that he was, they were the best of the best. They knew that they were the most effective and efficient soldiers on the planet. They knew that all the nations around them feared them. But what Paul is saying is this. Just like these guys got up in the morning and put on their physical armor, we have to be people who put on our armor from God, our spiritual armor. Now, some of you guys who are packing heat this morning, I know there are a few of y'all in here, you're a little bit disappointed. These are immaterial weapons, I'm sure. You want to blow off a demon's head with an assault rifle or something. But here's the deal. These weapons that God has given us, they have a unique power to win battles in the spiritual realm. doesn't seem like there's much to them, but as we go through the armor, we'll see how effective they can be. And there are a lot of misconceptions about the armor of God. For a long time, here's what I thought. I thought you kind of woke up in the morning and you knew the enemy was out there somewhere, so you just needed to pray about this list and God would protect you. And I did that for a long time and I think God protected me just because he's a good God and he overlooked my ignorance. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Okay, what Paul is talking about here is synonymous with putting on the new self in chapter 4, verse 24. Okay, he's, he's telling us that you need to put on this character and these virtues that are yours and can be yours through Christ. When you live this way, when you live by my spirit, I will strengthen you and allow you to stand against the evil one. So the armor of God is more of a lifestyle than it is a prayer. Okay, and let me also note this. This is kind of a qualifying statement before we jump into the armor. Sometimes, because we can't see, hear, feel, sense, sometimes we can, spiritual warfare. It's hard to determine what's just sin and living in a broken world and what's actually spiritual warfare. But most of the time, the way we react should not change. Not all the time, but most of the time. We need to be walking with our armor on all day, every day, especially when attacks are coming. So let's look at the armor. First, the defensive armor, and then our weapons. First thing we got is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. For the Roman soldier, his belt would obviously go around his waist, and his sword would hang from it, his breastplate would attach to it, his shield could attach to it. It was a very essential piece for him to function the way he needed to function. And Paul says that one of the most essential pieces of the Christian's armor is truth. If we want to stand against the attacks of the enemy, we've got to be people of truth. And this makes perfect sense, right? Because Satan's most common tactic is lies and deception. It's exactly what he did to Eve in the garden, isn't it? Did God really say, no, 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 you won't die. And because Eve wasn't prepared to stand in truth, she fell. And the whole human race fell after her. Right? And Satan's tactics have not changed. We know how these lies sound. One look never hurt anybody. You can't be, you can't be honest on every business deal. This is just one. Stay with her. Don't stay with her. She doesn't make you happy. That person over there is judging you. Just another hour at the office. Just a little more overtime. I'll buy the kids something to make up for it. We're all too familiar with those lies and a hundred more. 
And friends, if we don't apply the truth of the Scripture, we're not going to be able to stand firm against the evil one. And let me say this, you guys, with great love and no legalism at all. Some of us are under attack from the enemy, and we cannot fight back because we don't know what the truth is. We've got to be people who read the Bible daily, not as students, but as soldiers. We've got to. We've got to become obsessed with this word. This is how we fight. And for those of us who do read it, let's make sure that we're applying it. Right? Because some of us have these big theological heads of knowledge, but when attacks come, we crumble because we're not actually applying the word. So if we want to stand against the lies of the evil one, we've got to know and apply the truth of the Bible. Next, breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. For the Roman soldier, the breastplate went from the neck all the way down to the thighs. It was called the heart protector. Right? And I don't know much about Roman combat or any combat. I'll show all my cards. But obviously, if you're fighting face-to-face, it's a critical, critical piece of equipment. Right? And Paul tells the Ephesians believers that they need to put on righteousness like a breastplate. Okay, when God speaks of His righteousness for us in the Scripture, we've got two different kinds of righteousness. Okay? There is first imputed righteousness. And basically what that means is God takes the righteousness of Jesus and He imputes it onto us or He, he credits it to our account. So when each of us believed, God looked at us and He declared us righteous before Him. Okay? Imputed righteousness. That's a good, good thing. That's actually not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is practical righteousness. Right? Living life in a way that honors God. Personal holiness. And here's the deal. Pursuing holiness guards us against the enemy's attacks. And it enables us to stand firm against them. Here's what I mean. When you willingly choose sin, you are opening yourselves up for the attack of the enemy. Chapter 4, verse 26 makes it real clear. When we persist in anger, right, we give the devil an opportunity. We give him a foothold, right? And you guys, haven't we all seen this in our marriages? One of us comes home in a bad mood, don't really want to get it in a good mood, and before long we're in this cosmic conflict because one of us just wants to stay mad. We gave the enemy an opportunity, right? Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 7... Paul says that married couples who are not regularly intimate with one another, they leave the door open for Satan to tempt them. So here's the idea. When we don't pursue personal holiness, we become more and more vulnerable to attack. So let me ask you, are you pursuing Christ every day? Are you justifying sin in your life? Are you blatantly going after sin in any area? If you are, you are offering a personal invitation to the enemy to manipulate you. So we've got truth, righteousness, now readiness. Paul commands the believers as shoes for their feet to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Okay, Roman shoes were critical for their soldiers. Okay, they strapped all the way up to the knee real tight. The coolest thing about them is they had these little nails coming out the bottom of them. They're like first century cleats on steroids. This allowed them to stand firm in the face of attack. And Paul tells the believers that if you want to stand firm, you need these shoes of readiness. It's actually the gospel of peace. Okay, And this word readiness is an interesting word, you guys. I I think actually it would probably be translated established. Right, It fits more appropriately in the context. 
So what Paul is telling them is you need to be established in the gospel. You need to be firmly rooted in the gospel. Right? How does being rooted in the gospel help us against Satan? Because one of Satan's major tactics is condemnation. He wants to put guilt onto us. He wants us to feel shameful. Right? Surely some of you guys are here this week or here this morning and sometime this week you screwed up or maybe last night you screwed up and you think, man, I don't even feel worthy to sing the songs this morning. I almost didn't come. Right? Oftentimes Satan is more dangerous and more effective after we fail. Right? First he lures us in with his shiny bait and then when we bite, he hits us with, oh, you're worthless. You call yourself a Christian? You should never pick your Bible up again. But if we're rooted in the gospel, we can fight that. Right? Charles Spurgeon said it best. This is a paraphrase. He said, if Satan condemns you and tells you of your unworthiness, quickly agree with him and show him to the cross. Quickly agree with him and show him to the cross. I call it supernatural trash talk. Right? And here's how it sounds. I'm I'm not even kidding. Talk trash to the evil one. It's great. Tell him, Satan, yes, I am unworthy. Yes, I deserve the wrath of God. Yes, my desires are sick and perverted and wrong. God should punish me eternally. But Satan, let me tell you what he's done. He sent Jesus to live the perfect life that I should have lived. He sent Jesus to be my divine wrath bearer. He took the punishment that I deserve. And then he rose from the dead. And guess what, Satan? My hope is not in me. My hope is in him. But for you, Satan, let me remind you of your coming doom. Where he will pour out all his wrath on you furiously for eternity. But for me, there's no condemnation in Christ. That's what it means to be firmly rooted or established in the gospel of peace. And that's how we fight the condemning voice of the enemy. And y'all see it's a fight. Next, the shield of faith. Paul commands us all the time in every circumstance to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield for a Roman soldier, four feet by two and a half feet, big shield. Hooks on each either side to where one soldier could hook it to the soldiers around him so they could build an almost impenetrable wall. But the coolest thing about these shields to me was that they would soak some leather in water. Okay? And then they would put the leather over the shield so that when the flaming flaming arrows would come from the enemy, immediately when they hit, they'd be extinguished. They wouldn't light a wooden shield on fire. And Paul says for believers, our faith is like that. When we consistently trust in the character and the promises of God, we can stand against the enemy. You guys, this is so needed for us. Because Satan loves to discourage us. He loves to cause us to doubt. Right? We know what these flaming darts feel like and sound like. God doesn't love you. If He loved you, you wouldn't still be single. God is not good. If God were good, you wouldn't still be struggling with that sickness. God can't take care of you. Who cares what His Word says? You still don't have a job. Or young people, if you decide to follow Christ, you'll never have fun again. Or God can't forgive you. You're way too bad. Would a loving God really want you to stay with that person if you're unhappy? 
Right? We know this voice that causes us to, to doubt who God is and what He's promised us. Right? But He doesn't just do this on an individual level. He does this on a, a national level, on a global level. Right? Think about our culture right now. Really? One man, one woman? I mean, your God is a bigot. Could a good God really be so exclusive? You see, Satan is attacking our faith at every angle. And again, if we want to stand firm, friends, the best place to be is with your nose in this book. We've got to know what it says if we want to stand. We've got to know who and what our faith is in. Okay, our last defensive piece of armor, the helmet of salvation. Paul commands the believers to take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet's self-explanatory, right? If you get hit in the head, you're done. And Paul says that for the believer, our helmet is salvation. Okay, in the scripture, the word salvation can mean a few different things. Salvation can be referring to our past salvation, which is our justification. That's the moment that we believe we're made right with God. So we were saved. Salvation. There's present salvation, right, where God is conforming us into the image of Christ. We are being saved. And there's a future salvation, our glorification. Right? And glorification is one day when God will finally, physically, completely do for us what He has promised through the gospel. Okay? In this context, I think the helmet is future salvation. And let me tell you why I think that. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, similar passage. Paul commands the Thessalonians to put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. It's a future thing. Okay, secondly... In my experience, through certain struggles that often seem like attacks from the enemy, when discouragement and depression and despair come, when there's constant pain that leads to bitterness, and when dark clouds of sadness rule, one of the only things that helps me is to hope in the world to come, to look forward to what's coming. You guys know when you have something to look forward to, how it allows you to endure so much more. And that's what Paul is talking about here. When Satan seems like he's dominating this world, sometimes our best hope is to look to the world that is to come, where we will be with King Jesus forever, where our sin that continues to plague us will be destroyed, where that ailment in our body will be removed, where relationships will be healed, where we are with our Savior forever. Believer, that's coming for you. Oh, the hope of salvation. That's how you stand against the devil's discouragements. So that's our defense. Truth, righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation. But we've got two offensive weapons. And here's what Jesus says. He says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That means we're on offense. And Satan is frightened by the church. So let's see what our weapons are. Verse 17. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our first offensive weapon is the Word of God. For the Romans, their sword was short, two feet long, really light. They could maneuver quickly with it. It was for face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat. Okay, they would have become second nature with these little swords. It wasn't anything impressive about this weapon, but it was powerful and it was effective. And Paul says that believers have a sword too. 
and that our sword is the Word of God. Now, Word of God here is probably a little bit different than what you think of when you hear Word of God. Right? I think most believers probably think, well, if I'm tempted in a certain way, then I need to apply the most applicable verses as I can to this situation in order to fight against Satan. I would say that's more like the truth that we're supposed to fight with. When Paul's talking about the Word of God, he's talking about the overarching message of the Scripture. He's talking about the gospel. And he says that when this gospel is shared, it is the most powerful weapon that we have. The gospel. The gospel is the message of who Jesus is and what he has done on behalf of sinners like us. And here's why this message is such a threat to our stupid enemy. It's because when this gospel is shared by the power of the Spirit, people who are dead in their sins, who are blinded by the God of this world, who are bound in the kingdom of darkness, are made alive, given eyes to see, and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And it's all by hearing the gospel made effective by the Holy Spirit. Friends, think about your conversion for a moment. Was it not because you heard the gospel? Maybe from a pastor or maybe from a friend, but somebody shared the gospel with you and you believed. And so I ask us not to make us feel bad at all, because it's sometimes scary and tough. But how are you doing with sharing the gospel? When's the last time you told somebody what Jesus did on your behalf? You see, if this is true, friends, it's not enough just to put on our defensive armor. We've got to share this good news. Right? And if you don't know how, practice. Right? Here, here's the kind of order that I go through in my mind, every time I share the gospel with somebody, God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. God, who's God? God is the holy, just, good creator of all things. Okay? He made man perfect, but man rebelled against God. And when our first parents rebelled against God, they passed on sin to all of us, which is easily evidenced in our selfish attitudes and actions. And because God is just and good, He must punish evil. And man finds himself in that category, deserving the full wrath of a holy God. But God, who is rich in mercy, sends His Son, Jesus Christ, is our third one, to live the perfect life that we should have lived, to die as our substitute, to conquer death and prove that He had finished pouring out His wrath on His Son. And whoever believes in Him, His sins will be forgiven, and He is guaranteed life forever with God. And then there's a response. If you respond to that, God will welcome you into His kingdom as a son or daughter. But if you don't, the wrath of God will remain on you. So practice sharing that good news. If you're here this morning and you've not heard that news before, or you're not a Christian, friend, believe that good news. That is your biggest need in the world. A perfect, holy, mighty God. He wants to save you. Just believe that His Son died in your place. So share the gospel. The sword of the Spirit. Right? You don't have to be awkward about it. The best way to do this is just pray that God would help you understand what He's done for you in Christ, that you would get excited about it, and we talk about the things we're excited about. 
There's not any magical formula. Just get excited about the gospel and talk about it. And as you do, God will make people alive, bring people into his kingdom, and Satan will be a defeated foe. So the gospel made effective by the Spirit, that's our first weapon. second one is prayer, 18 through 20. Let's close it out. Paul instructs us to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You guys, if you're nervous about sharing the gospel, the greatest Christian leader of all time is just asking the Ephesian believers, hey, please pray for me because I don't know what to say and sometimes I get nervous to say it. I need clarity and I need boldness. And so if your heart beats really fast and you get nervous when God kind of opens the door and wants you to walk through it, you're in really good company. Right? The power is not in our delivery. It's in the gospel. And Paul knew that, so he asked for prayer on it. But Paul, Paul didn't want the Ephesians just to pray about the gospel. He wanted them to pray about everything. Four times in these three verses it says the word all. Right? He spends more time talking about prayer in this list than anything else. And he says there should be all kinds of prayer. Prayer should be for all kinds of people. He doesn't want us to grow tired in it, but to stay alert. He wants us to look for answers. He wants us to persevere until we see God show up. Friends, in the spiritual realm, victories are often won and lost because of prayer or lack of it. And I know prayer is hard. Right? It's hard because you don't see any immediate results from it. And it's hard because Satan hostily opposes it. But prayer is where the battle is fought, my friends. God loves to act when His people pray. We'll be strengthened by Him when we call out to Him. I mean, what, are, what are we missing out on because we don't pray? As a church, what are we missing out on because we, we're not as prayerful as we should be? Wouldn't it be awesome just to see God move in our lives and in our church because we came, became people of prayer? Okay, and very quickly, I want to draw your attention to one more thing in these three verses. I want us to look at the corporate aspect of this. Paul says that we're to make supplication for all the saints. He wants these Ephesians to pray for each other and for their leaders. And here's how it works, you guys. Sometimes when somebody's under the attack of the enemy, or sometimes when somebody's just having a rough go at it, other people are not. And as members of the same body, we need to carry those people during those times. And the best and the most effective way to carry them is to pray for them. We've got to pray for each other. right? And this means we can't be too arrogant to tell people, hey, I need you to pray. I need you to pray for me. I'm struggling with this. So let's be people of prayer for each other. And let's be people of prayer for our leaders. Right? Paul is begging for their prayers. So let's, let's pray for our elders and our staff. Right? And as we do... Together as a church, we're going to stand. So there are offensive weapons. The Word of God and prayer. Not very impressive on the outside, but powerful and effective. The gates of hell cannot prevail against our weapons. Lots more can be said about spiritual warfare. right? It's all throughout the Bible. But three things we need to know this morning if we want to stand. One, we've got to know our enemy. Two, we've got to know where our strength comes from. And last, we have to put on God's armor. In Christ, 
we have what it takes to stand. In Christ, we have what it takes to advance. Satan has been defeated at the cross. We are to be strengthened with God's eternal strength. So as we move into worship, I want us to celebrate. I want us to legitimately celebrate Satan's coming doom. Rejoice in it. It's okay to be delighted about that. But more, I want you to rejoice. I want you to celebrate in the strength and in the security that is yours in Jesus. We are strong in Him, and we have all that we need to stand. Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You. Thank You for showing us how to fight in this battle. Thank You for giving us all that we need and more. Lord, I pray for the people in this congregation who are having a tough time right now. Many of them are under attack right now. I pray that you'd strengthen them with your strength. I pray against the enemy in the name of our Savior. I pray that as we go out this week, we would live a life in your armor so that we would stand firm against the evil one. I pray that the gospel would be fresh on our lips to advance against them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.